Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is The Takeaway, and I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. It's politics time, and we've got plenty to discuss. Washington is breathing a bit easier today because late Wednesday night, Democratic and Republican Senate leaders reached a deal to halt the government from defaulting, at least temporarily. The short-term debt ceiling increase is only good until early December. But in the one-day-at-a-time reality that is the new norm for our governance, congressional leaders are sounding triumphant for accomplishing the short-term fix. We have reached agreement to extend the debt ceiling through early December, and it's our hope that we can get this done as soon as today. Democratic members and staff negotiated through the night in good faith. The Senate is moving toward the plan I laid out yesterday to spare the American people a manufactured crisis. Legislative action in the Capitol has a pretty short time horizon. But elected leaders are engaged in longer-term planning on one thing, midterm elections. More than a year out from November 2022, contested races in key states are already beginning to make headlines. Both Democratic and Republican leaders are strategizing, fundraising, gerrymandering, and prognosticating at a fevered pitch. All right, let's talk about it. We've got Michael Steele, former lieutenant governor of Maryland, previous chair of the RNC, and host of the Michael Steele podcast. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Hey, Melissa. How are you? It's so good to be back with you. It is so good. And, you know, I totally want to rename your podcast Man of Steel podcast. But, you know, we can we can totally talk about that later. (laughs) You know what? I have to tell you, we actually that was the original name. But what we found was that people just got it confused with the actual Man of Steel. (laughs) I was like, like, okay, that's complicated. (laughs) Yeah, let's just. Right. Fair enough. (laughs) We're also here with Christina Greer from Fordham University. Who is co-host of the podcast FAQ NYC and author of the book Black Ethnics, Rage, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream? Welcome back, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Michael and Chrissy, this is for both of you. We've just been talking here about the debt ceiling. And we sent our young digital producer, Zach Bynum, out this week. We wanted him to talk to some folks. So he went around the NYU campus. And, and basically asked people what they knew about the debt ceiling and how it affects them. I just want to take a listen to an answer that's pretty indicative of the kind of responses we heard. For starters, I don't know what it means, but I'm assuming it's talking about the fact that, like, student debt is so high that, like, it's reaching, like, a ceiling that, like, it shouldn't be so high. You know what I'm saying? So, obviously, that's wrong. But it occurs to me that people are not necessarily very invested in a debt ceiling fight. Michael, let me start with you, because I guess it's in some ways the Republicans have picked it. Why have this fight if people aren't even sure what they're fighting about? Uh, that's why you have it. it, it the reason you have it is it's easier to uh, purvey in confusion and to create a narrative that is not exactly uh, historically or otherwise correct. And so... 
you know, when you're out here making claims that, you know, for example, the Biden administration needs to do this alone, well, that's never happened and it can't happen. You, you have to have a bipartisan resolution, one. Two, uh, the idea that, oh, you know, the Biden administration you know, it has to raise the debt ceiling to pay for its its social engineering of the American economy. Well, that's just BS because what this what raising the debt ceiling is to pay back, pay for the bills that were already created, meaning in this case, the eight trillion dollars that the Trump administration spent over its four years. So if you have a public that is not engaged in the in the facts around what this is and what it isn't, it makes it easier for a political operation uh, to play out where you just sow confusion and make it seem like this is a problem created by the other guy. Uh, that That is actually extremely helpful to think of because I think we typically think, and, and Christine, I'm even thinking like political science, we think, okay, people take meaningful positions and they're trying to kind of position themselves relative to the political parties. But if it's actually better to have a fight about nothingness, then we we don't even get to the big issues. Absolutely, Melissa. I mean, think about this. We spent, what, a month, two months talking about critical race theory out of nowhere instead of talking about the hundreds of thousands of Americans who have died because of COVID and the ineptitude of Republican leadership. So the Republican Party has mastered this bait and switch uh, that Democrats oftentimes follow along and play along with. Uh, but we have to understand that it, it's really them creating these nothing burgers for the public to argue about and, and think about uh, without a real conversation about what exactly is going on. And so as, as we know, the stakes are so high, the Republican Party has really uh, invested in a lot of confusion to make sure that they're never held accountable for a lot of their policy positions. Because when we look at public opinion, we see that the country is going in a direction that consistently moves farther and farther away from the Washington DC Republican elites. You know, what people really do understand though is, is jobs. And <laughs> Friday job numbers came out, they're pretty disappointing. Economy added 194,000 new jobs in September. That is way down from 366,000 in August and more than a million in July. You know, I, I'm wondering, uh, Christina, if if there's only sort of so long that that Democrats or Republicans can have a nothing burger, because people will notice in December if they don't have enough money to buy holiday gifts and pay those student loans. Absolutely. I mean, Melissa, you you know, you and I, as political scientists, know that. People go to the polls based on their economic circumstances. That's what they vote about. You know, lots of folks are like, oh, Latinx populations vote based on immigration. Absolutely not. They vote just like everyone else, pocketbook issues. And do you have enough money for you and your family to move forward? And I think the, the larger issue with the Democratic Party has always been, even with their successes, they're not great at articulating to the American public what they have done, how they have rescued the American public from horrid uh, Republican policies that have almost pushed us off an economic cliff. And so even if Americans don't have as much money as say they want or need or had a few years past, uh, Dem the Democratic Party needs to explain to the American public what exactly it is they're doing to make sure that there's a foundation being laid so people can actually have jobs moving forward if they don't have them right now. 
So, Michael, I'm, I'm interested as, as we're thinking about this, like, big questions here around uh, the material circumstances of ordinary Americans, as we're thinking about these, you know, these sort of D.C. fights that nobody even knows what the fights are about. And I got to say, I absolutely thought that at the end of the Trump term, that we were going to see an all-out battle for the soul of the Republican Party. That This was like the moment when we were going to see which Republican Party was going to come into ascendance and whether it was going to be one that was really kind of on these issues um, or one that was going to, you know, take, you know, questions like, for example, critical race theory to talk about. Is that battle happening? And I just don't see it because I might not be seeing it. Or is is it seated? Because I, I see the fight happening in the Democratic Party. Is it happening in the Republican Party? No, in in large measure, no, it's not. Uh, 75, 76, 78 percent of the base of the Republican Party uh, are stuck on Trump. And and we know you you certainly know, as both of you as professors, when you have someone in your in your class who's stuck on stupid, (laughs) you you realize there's very little that, you know, you might as well just give them the grade down and move on because (laughs) it ain't going to work. Um, and that's where we are in the party. I mean, there, there are those of us who are trying to carve out. In fact, I, I got into a little bit of a, a debate with a buddy of mine, and he just kept pressing me, why are you still a Republican? You know, if, if all of this is going on, why are you still a Republican? I said, well, because I want to, I, you know, there's a handful of us who want to stay inside with the light that says this is what democracy is about. This is what the Republican Party of Lincoln was about. This is what this is. These are the things that we still value and stand for. Uh, It's easy to blow the light out and leave. Um, A lot have done that. There's some of us who want to hold that standard up because whatever iteration uh, Republicanism uh, takes in the future, we feel this is an important part uh, and feature uh, of it. And so we don't want to while this form may may pass. I mean, we we remember the Whigs, right? Yeah, no, we don't. <laughs> They're gone. Um, this that may pass something something better has to replace it. And that's and that's what the battle is. Uh, the battle lines are being drawn around right now. You're going to see some of that, uh, Melissa, in the upcoming election cycle. You have candidates that are emerging like Evan McMullen in Utah, um, who, um, you know, is running as an independent for the U.S. Senate um, to, you know, former Republican uh, presidential candidate in the 2016 cycle, um, you know, who are trying to reestablish the guardrails. And and I think you're going to see more and more candidates like that. There is a groundswell of support, by the way, for Liz Cheney not just in her own, own district in, in, in Wyoming, but across uh, the country. So it, it, there, it's happening in pockets, but it, but it is happening. And look, to be fair, that question, why stay in the Republican Party, isn't really a bad question to also ask of Democrats, right? Particularly maybe of Black Democrats, why stay in the party or of progressive Democrats? And so, Christine, maybe I'll just come to you on this about what is a very apparent public battle within the Democratic Party right now. And I'm wondering, because, I, I you know, I... I think the our sense is if you're fighting internally, that weakens the party going into the midterms. But is there a way to understand it as potentially strengthening the party going into the midterms? Yeah, I mean, you know, Melissa, I'm oddly on a weird 
optimism kick these days, but I what? do think Wait, that- did you go on vacation or something? What do you mean? I, know, I'm just, I, I think I'm just trying to be like a plant and lean towards the light. But um, I think it's it's good to have productive policy debates in an intra-party way so that the Democratic Party can articulate a longstanding vision. Uh, now, if these fights and debates become petty and too longstanding and the American public feels as though there's too much navel gazing and internal fighting and not enough outward projection as to what the party is going to do for its members, then we've moved into a non-productive realm. But for right now, I think when you have sort of the progressive wing that is, is significant uh, within the Democratic Party, by no means the, the majority, and then you have a more moderate or more moderate and centrist uh, faction of the party that represents, quite honestly, uh, millions of Americans and, and the vast majority of Black Americans. They're trying to have substantive debates and conversations to figure out the best policy. We know that all things in American politics are rooted in compromise. And so no one is going to get their absolute 100% wish list. This is a time for them to flesh these things out. Now, as we get closer to primaries and election day, we need to solidify what exactly it is this party is doing for the American public, not just the Democratic Party, but just for the American public. The issue, as I said before, with the Democratic Party is even when they have wins and successes and the compromises being made, they still don't know how to articulate it to the American public to show the progress that's being made. Mike, I want to come to you on Mike Pence. Um, he was at, at one point a very clear critic of the people who attacked the Capitol um, on January 6th. But this week on Fox News suggested that uh, the day was exaggerated by media. And, and I'm just wondering again, like why? Like he, he was sort of a hero of that day in a weird way. And now he's adjusting his stance. It's it is uh, a reflection of the toxicity of Trumpism. Uh, and the the very unique attribute of uh, wanting to somehow please this man, um, not be on his bad side or his wrong side, needing him to to validate your political existence, um, which is the most incredibly stupid way to do politics. Um, but Mike Pence, who showed himself to be a true sycophant um, as vice president, um, even even in the face of the president essentially sicking his, his followers and supporters on him during the riots, um, still now finds himself uh, trying to mitigate that and explain it away and to make excuses and, and, and lie about it. And that tells you he's looking to run for president in, in 2024. He doesn't want um, to uh, have Trumpists uh, against him. And so this is this is the narrative that you see play out and you'll see and hear more of it over the next uh, 18 months. Look, if there is sort of one person or a set of people we are supposed to be absolutely beholden to in the context of a democracy, it's the people, right? The voters. And Christina, obviously this one of the central questions moving up to the to the midterms and well beyond around the health of democracy is voting rights. Um, and you know, for a while, kind of lots of noise around the voting rights bills. I'm wondering where they stand right now. Um, and if, you know, again, if the voters themselves can be a corrective to this madness. I know, Melissa. I mean, we know that that's one of the policy issues issues on the vice president's plate, along with immigration, border control, vaccine hesitancy, and police reform, and so much, so much more. I, I do think that 
we really do need to rely on a, an insider-outsider approach when it comes to voting rights. We need to sort of stay on our elected officials with protest politics, uh, not just in Washington, D.C., but also on the state house levels uh, to make sure that it's a multi-pronged approach. We know that the Republican Party is really invested in making sure that they roll back uh, all, all types of voting rights. We know that in 13 different states, we've got uh, proposals in the state house to, to do just that. But we also know that there's some mealy mouth Democrats that are, are, are not as assertive uh, as they should be with making sure that in this democratic republic, all citizens have uh, free and fair elections. If there is um, a critical public social issue that has divided the parties now for several decades. It is the question of abortion. And um, the Texas abortion law is obviously one that, that goes to a space we've never seen previously, not only in terms of restrictions, but in terms of deputizing ordinary citizens to actually enforce the law. Um, this week, we saw a temporary block by a federal judge on the on the state's ban um, and state officials quickly filing appeals. I'm wondering, I'll start with you, Michael, and then I want to come to you, Christina, sort of how you think this battle over abortion in the state of Texas, but but clearly much more than that, is going to play out again as we are going into the midterms. How much will this dominate our conversations? It's going to, dom- it's going to be a dominant issue, and it's going to be dominant because of uh, the of the case that's before the Supreme Court now um, in Mississippi, I believe, uh, that will that effectively uh, looks to gut uh, Roe versus Wade. They're, the Republicans have been trying in the latter half of uh, the last uh, 10 or 15 years trying to figure out strategies um, to, to do just that. They think they have found the formula and they're going to pursue it through the courts. There's the reason why um, McConnell held the line on Supreme Court nominations the way he did. Um, going back to Merrick Garland, because that was a big part of the strategy. It's one of the things, Melissa, you and I used to talk about this uh, when we were colleagues at MS, and that mm-hmm. and that was the Supreme Court. Y'all pay mm-hmm. attention to the Supreme Court, because Republicans were very obvious where their target was. And I think you're now seeing that play out, and you're going to see more of that uh, coming from the states. Um, and the Texas law, as someone who is pro-life, and that's all the way, I'm anti-death penalty, pro-human beings, right? Living life. Um, We're Catholic. It's like, it's like, it's like, yes, that's right. Natural life to natural death. Right. Exactly. And this law is an abomination Uh, to put a bounty on, on the, on the wombs of women um, uh, to take away their strip away their choice, which is now safeguarded by the constitution is unfathomable. Um, And I think uh, the responses uh, by uh, citizens are going to matter a lot going into next year. Christine, I want to let you weigh in as well. Yeah, a few things, Melissa. One, I mean, there's no such thing as pro-life. It's either pro-choice or anti-choice. And so what we're seeing is the Republican Party really moving towards a, a conversation to take away choice from millions of women in America. Two, uh, all the, the Gallup polls and Pew research is showing 60% of Americans say that abortion should be legal. So the Supreme Court and the Republican Party, again, are not in lockstep with the American public. I agree with Michael, this is going to be an issue that moves bodies to the polls. I think a lot of women are looking at not just their own choices, but the choices of their daughters. The beauty and the curse of 
you know, American democracy is that we have progress and regress. And so we thought that this literally was litigated in 1973. And we know that uh, conservative members of the Republican Party have been working diligently for about 50 years to roll this back. And um, we're seeing, you know, it pop up in states all across the country. And so it's really up to us to keep the pressure on our local state and national elected officials to make sure that we don't have uh, these sort of weak bills that that protect a woman's right to choose. We have to sort of be full-throated in our, in our agendas and really thinking about uh, the courts, not just the Supreme Court, but, you know, in many states you vote for various judges and really keeping an eye on your elected officials who appoint other justices. Uh, so we know that even in the lower courts, a woman's right to choose isn't taken away. Christina Greer is associate professor of political science at Fordham University, co-host of the podcast FAQ NYC and author of the book, Black Ethnics. Michael Steele is the former lieutenant governor of Maryland, the former chair of the RNC and host of the Michael Steele podcast. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Melissa. It's such a pleasure to be with you again, Melissa. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, everybody, I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. On Thursday, activists and advocates protested in front of the White House, demanding that the Congressional Reconciliation Package include a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. And getting loud about immigration reform is crucial because of all the public fights we've seen in D.C. this fall on government spending, infrastructure, housing support, and other social safety net concerns worth getting noisy about. But amid it all, immigration issues have been pretty quiet. And in D.C., you have to be heard in order to get action. New York State Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas traveled to D.C. this week and was arrested while participating in a peaceful protest. Assemblymember Gonzalez-Rojas, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Melissa, for having me. So what was the message that you wanted to send by protesting in front of the White House this week? Well, we wanted to send the message that immigrants are here to stay. We are the backbones of our families and our communities. And this is the closest we ever got in decades um, to seeing some real reform happen. And right now, a parliamentarian in the Senate, an unelected official, is blocking the process. And we know that only the presiding officer, which is the vice president, Kamala Harris, can make that determination. So we are asking our senators to push forward, to hold the line and ensure that we can get as many immigrants into society and uh, legalize them and offer a path to citizenship in the United States. I mean, it, it is rather stunning. Here you are, an assembly member. You're an elected member, certainly of the state, but, you know, you have a constituency. And you're there having to push from the outside over and against someone, the parliamentarian, who doesn't have a constituency, who isn't elected. Exactly. I am elected in a community that is so diverse. I literally represent a community in Western Queens that speaks nearly 200 languages, that is 60% Latinx, 30% Asian, and the diversity of Asian communities. Everything from Bangladesh to Nepal to India to Pakistan to Thailand. Like We are one of the most diverse communities in, in the United States, and I'm elected by 
my community to represent my community. And I was there standing alongside advocates across the country, but so many that came in from New York, Senator Schumer's home state, to demand action on immigration, action by those that they elected or their family members or other community members elected to represent them, not an unelected parliamentarian. So you did have an opportunity to meet with Senate Majority Leader Schumer uh, while you were in D.C. And and I'm wondering if you were able to get commitments from him, language, any of those kinds of things. I do know Senator Schumer is working really hard. Uh, This is something that is really important, obviously, representing a state like New York. The immigrant community really is the fabric of our community. They've really been the essential workers that have pushed our city and state through this pandemic, continue to work in difficult positions, and they deserve a real opportunity and a real pathway to citizenship. So while we didn't get firm commitments, the majority leader did say he's continuing to push and look at all the different avenues to get this forward, uh, bypass the parliamentarians, what I would say a recommendation, (laughs) as opposed to some sort of decision, because only the presiding officer, which is the vice president, can really make that determination. So... I'm also really interested in this idea of a state party um, elected official heading on down, in this case, to uh, to Washington, D.C. Talk to me about how you're seeing the Democratic Party at this moment um, in terms of national leadership versus, for example, someone like you who's representing, you know, a, a district that's got folks speaking 200 languages. Is the big D Democratic Party up there really in touch with what's happening on the ground for Democratic voters. It's so interesting because as a state representative in a state like New York, you know, you do see the wide range of political views that make up the Democratic Party. While we are a majority here in New York, you know, you have everyone representing a rural upstate district uh, to an urban, dense, diverse district. So there's diversity within the party and within the constituencies that they represent. But I'm also the district that elected Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, right? Like this, we elected a bold progressive leaders who are going to stand up and be a strong voice. And I'm part of that wave of really progressive leaders who are come from activism, who come from advocacy, who work alongside the grassroots um, to elevate the voices of those who are most impacted by the policies that we're going to advance. So at the national level, I, I see that as the same thing. You have Democrats that really reflect the diversity of the country, but it is really important to center the people who are most impacted by the policies and, you know, getting down to D.C., fighting outside the White House alongside so many undocumented populations. We had people from Korea, from from Thailand, from Colombia, from Peru. It was just incredible to see the diversity of folks who came out across the country. People were there from North Carolina and from Florida and again from New York. So this is what America is, right? This is who is building back America. These are the people who are raising their families in our communities. These are my father. (laughs) These are us, you know, at the front lines. There's elected officials who are uh, formally undocumented and are uh, immigrants themselves. So again, this it, it is critical that we get our voices heard and ensure that we have an opportunity to make sure those who have been left behind in this immigration system um, that they have an opportunity to live, work, and thrive in our in our country. Now, what is it you need Vice President Harris to do here? Vice President Harris is really the only one that can make a determination 
as to whether an item is able to be included in the Reconciliation Act, whether it has budgetary implications eligible for the Reconciliation Act. So that is what she can do. She can take the advice of the parliamentarian or not. So she's really the only person that can make that determination. And we are asking her to make that determination because we know that there are billions of dollars that are at stake in terms of getting our immigrant communities on a path to citizenship. They are uh, taxpayers. Um, They can contribute to our communities and our economies, and it will be a boost to our economy, especially as we come out of this pandemic. And of course, the vice president herself has an immigrant story, um, you know, has has a story of family that has made their way in this country in, in precisely that way. Exactly. I mean, if anything, uh, who should understand the immigrant experience the most is, is Kamala Harris. So, I, I, you know, she is of South Asian descent as well as being black. And it's really exciting to have someone that has that comes from those roots, have that background and ultimately understands the immigrant experience. So we are asking her to, you know, look inward. This is so critical. This is as close as we have ever come in decades to something real and tangible for our community. So we really need her leadership to step up and say that this is eligible for inclusion in the reconciliation package. It will be a boost to our economy. It'll be a boost to our country. And this is what our communities need and deserve. Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas represents New York's 34th Assembly District. Assemblymember, thank you for making the noise that we need. Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate you having me. Let's get. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's done. Thanks for staying with us here on The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And like so many others working in American media, I will never forget this moment in 2016. The Washington Post reporter freed from Iran is on his way home to the U.S. this morning. Jason Rezaian and his family have left that U.S. military hospital in Landstuhl, Germany. Rezaian was released after 18 months in captivity in a prisoner swap between the U.S. and Iran. Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian was finally free after more than a year and a half in an Iranian jail. Every day of Rezaian's 544 days of imprisonment, had heightened the sense of vulnerability so many journalists felt about the risks of the work. And with his release came a sense of relief. But it was the beginning of yet another journey for Rezaian himself. And now he's telling his story as the host of the Spotify original podcast, 544 Days, produced by Gimlet, Crooked Media, and A24. I spoke with Jason about the fact that it's been more than five years since his release and asked Why tell the story now? There's a lot of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, when I came out of prison in Iran, it was really important for me personally to understand what happened. What happened to me inside Iran, what my family and friends 
were trying to do uh, on my behalf to free me, what my employers at the Washington Post were doing, what the U.S. government was doing. So, you know, I, I knew I wanted to tell this story right away, but I also understood that I wasn't in a hurry to do it. I, I just wanted to get it right. Um, and as the time went on in the months after my release, the facts around my release became so politicized. And I was at, at the center of that politicized narrative for so long that I knew that this was something that was going to stick around my whole life. I didn't realize that five years later, we'd still be talking about so, so many of those issues. And you know, when I, when I wrote my book and it came out in 2019, it was a memoir told from my point of view sitting in prison, but it was really informed by so many conversations that I had had in those first couple of years of freedom. What we did here in this podcast would bring all those voices in and hopefully tell a really compelling story. You're talking about writing the memoir, um, but then when we think about the work of journalism, typically journalism is discovery. We presume that we're starting with a question. We don't we don't know the the answer. We may not know the end point. And I think for many folks, it may be hard to imagine how one does journalistic discovery on your own experience. But that's precisely what you've done here. Can you talk a little bit about what it meant to actually have to go back and piece together? a thing that you lived through. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really that, you know, kind of working backwards from the end to the beginning. And a lot of that had to do with a sense of wanting to make sure that, you know, people, people close to me, people responsible for me, but also people in the U.S. government who have these big jobs, wanted to make sure that they were turning over every rock that they could. Uh, in, in the quest to free me. So, you know, there was that personal sort of selfish element to make sure that I hadn't been forgotten. But, you know, I, I learned very quickly that my plight and what had happened to me was something that a lot of folks in government and at my paper at the Washington Post and, and around the media in the U.S. and around the world were taking really seriously. So people had this feeling as though they knew me even though we'd never met before. Uh, so doors, especially in those initial months of freedom, were really open to me. And so, you know, I, I used that opportunity uh, to ask questions and people gave me really frank answers. And, and here we are years later, you know, still talking about uh, Iran and the U.S. and that deal. Um, and I, I think that we might have sort of the definitive account of what happened. It is not only uh, an account of what happened to you, but also a story of your wife's imprisonment as well. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, she uh, endured uh, really an atrocious situation. She was born and raised in Tehran, um, you know, married a, a foreigner, knew what that entailed, um, had her own career as a journalist. And that career, her life, her community were completely upended very suddenly when we were taken to prison. Um, and it was important for me uh, to give her a voice in this story as well, because a lot of people don't realize not only what she went through, what we went through together, but the role that she played in, in fighting for me and never giving up that fight. Um, and I think for anybody who, who decides to listen to, to 544 Days, I think she's the star. Hmm. 
there's an episode called um, Meet the Resigns, and the audience gets this opportunity to meet your family. I'm wondering, um, as you make this point about your wife and her, both her own suffering and survival, but also her absolute unwillingness to give up, her her complete dedication um, to your freedom as well, and and becoming the star of the podcast, what, what everyone is going for as a journalist, to be the star of the podcast. Um, I'm wondering about the rest of the family, how willing they were to participate and to kind of relive in this this moment all these years later. I dedicated my memoir to, to Yegi, my wife, um, to my brother, Ollie, and to my mom, because not only were they invested from the moment that I was taken, um, invested in, in winning in my release as quickly as and safely as possible, they've continued to be invested in me. And, you know, those three people are the closest to me in the world. They're incredibly different from one another, incredibly different from me and have different perspectives and insights into what happened. So I really wanted to give them the opportunity to, um, to have their say, you know, it wasn't at all clear to me that my mom and, and my brother and Yagi would want to take part, but they, they dove in and, uh, you know, walked with me as we kind of interrogated, reinterrogated some of these moments of, of our lives, moments that, that we lived on opposite sides of the world in some cases. So it was really revelatory for me. And I think, again, the, the, the distinct nature of three, these three people, their points of view, um, their relationships with me is another layer of what makes our show special, I think. Were there any people who were essential to this story who you weren't able to interview? It would have been great to have President Obama. Um, that didn't work out. But, you know, we had so many of his envoys and, and, and people that were communicating with him about this. Uh, and, and then we had wonderful archival sound of, of him as well. The two other people that would have been wonderful to have were my interrogator, Kazem, and Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif. But again, in, in Zarif, we had the opportunity uh, to, to call on archival sound of him uh, really digging deeper holes for me <laughs> you know, throughout throughout my imprisonment. Uh, and, and, you know, in terms of my interrogator, Kazem, I think I paint a pretty good picture of him and I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but Yegi and I do a pretty good impression of him as well. <laughs> you have a certain humor, maybe it's a little, little dark humor, but you have a certain strength in your voice as you're talking about this. Can you talk to me about what it was like to um, retell and relive these events, whether in the writing, in the in the journalistic inquiry, or in the actually in the sound, in the podcast? The, the writing was mostly done in 2016 and 2017 in the in the months after my release. And there was absolutely nothing cathartic about that people would ask me all the time you know is this is writing this you know giving you healing no absolutely not i mean it was like peeling back a, a still a fresh wound and so it was it was hard i had a lot of nightmares the most action-oriented scenes i mean the first chapter and and the penultimate chapter of the book um really hard to to sit down and do because it just brought me back into that moment so much but now, five years on, I feel as though this is a story that that I can tell, 
rather than a horrible experience that I'm still suffering from. And I think crossing over that bridge from, from trauma to, to a personal narrative has been really good for me, you know, psychologically, emotionally, uh, and, and just allowed me to kind of uh, move forward in my life. I mean, this is something that happened to me. In all likelihood, it's the thing that will be most associated with my name for the rest of my life and beyond. In retelling it and being able to retell it in the ways that I want to, and having such a, a complete accounting of it, I, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, it's allowed me to kind of um, move past it. It's really lovely how you have articulated that, to, to move from a trauma that is happening to you, that you are living in in that moment, um, to a story that you can tell. That's a survivor's journey for so many different kinds of traumas. I'm wondering if that, um, if that survivor's journey is also part of what people can expect to take um, from the podcast? I would hope so. I mean, you know, I, I was thrust into a set of circumstances that no one um, can anticipate and that few are ready for. And I certainly wasn't ready for it myself. When, when the, the COVID pandemic started early in 2020, a lot of people started coming to me and saying, Jason, you survived solitary confinement. I'm really nervous about about the idea of being in isolation, and I, I I never thought that that my experience uh, would be applicable to the 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 thing that that we've all been living through for the last almost two years now. You know, I I, I told people then, uh, and and I still tell people now. You know, we're built to get through these things. We are built to survive doesn't mean you necessarily will, but you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make whether you're going to be an enemy to yourself or be your friend. And um, I actively chose to be a friend to myself, which meant that I found things to laugh at. Uh, you know, when I found my mind going into the darkest places, I tried to take myself out of it. And I planned for the future. And I think that, that those lessons that I learned uh, by myself are pretty universal. I mean, they're, they're the things that, that people who survive um, do when they're put into these unreasonable situations. And if there's something in, in that for, uh, for listeners or, or, or other people who, who hear my story, that would make me feel really good. It would mean that uh, what happened to me wasn't just wasted time. You are still a storyteller. You are still a journalist. Why? That's a great question. As you know, it, it's not because of the money. <laughs> uh, um, I, I love telling stories. Uh, and, you know, I've focused a lot on uh, the last couple of years, the stories of, of other journalists who have faced threats um, in different parts of the world. Uh, I believe in, in the, the importance of press freedom and the, the, or really the, the need to protect it as a, as a, as a guiding principle of, of democracy and one that is constantly under threat. My wife actually now works at the Committee to Protect Journalists. This is something that we care deeply about. And I've also told a lot of stories of other people who've been taken hostage, taken hostage by governments especially, um, because you know the, the abuse of uh, a massive power like a state against uh, a defenseless, innocent individual is a really sadistic and, and dark 
kind of crime and one that um, that we haven't fully uh, come to understand. And, and it, it's a phenomenon that's getting worse and worse. So telling these kinds of stories is really important to me. But I'd love to switch gears at some point and and, and tell some other stories, um, you know, fiction and 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 um, you know, illuminate the experiences of of communities that I understand, whether it's journalists, hostages, Iranians living in America. You know, I, I wasn't ever any good at anything else. Not that good <laughs> at math, good at science, but you know, I could spin a yarn, I guess. So might as well keep doing it. Jason Rosian, I'm looking forward to all of the yarn that you will spin and all the stories that you will tell. Jason is the host of the new Spotify original podcast, 544 Days. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Melissa. It's been a real pleasure. All right, y'all, that's the show. And it has been an absolute pleasure recording in a real studio right here in good old New York City. And we hope that you've enjoyed listening just as much as I enjoyed recording. But before I take off, I want to give a big shout out to the team who makes this audio magic every week with me. There's Lee Hill, our executive producer. Our senior producers this week are Ethan Oberman and Meg Dalton. Our producers are Shanta Covington, Katerina Barton, and Deborah Goldstein. Zachary Bynum is our digital editor. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer and sound designer. And Jay Cowett is our director. Jackie Martin is our line producer. And David Gable is our executive assistant. Be sure to tune in on Monday because we have a very special Indigenous People's Day special. And you're going to get to hear some of our favorite conversations about Native and Indigenous peoples. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Thank you.